Outside a Thread is recorded on the unceded territory of the Wurundjeri people of the Eastern Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land I broadcast from. I recognise their ongoing legacy and connection to land, waters and culture, and pay respect to their elders, both past and present. I extend this respect to all other First Nations people of this continent, whose stolen land our infrastructure and digital connectivity is built upon. Hey, I'm Darcy, and you're listening to Outside a Thread. For this week's episode, I sat down with Rihanna Head Toussaint, an artist, lawyer, and DJ. A creative based in Eora, she's passionate about community, club culture, and inclusivity. She's also a founder of Crip Rave Theory, an intersectionally accessible rave event, breaking new ground in the Sydney scene. We discussed disability, her escape from law into art full time, and what we're each feeling passionate about at the moment. Hi, Rihanna. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. How are you going today? Welcome to NAM Melbourne. You've just driven down. Thank you. Yeah, I'm good. I had a smooth, lovely drive today. I was just like meeting up with some friends. I went for a swim this morning Mm. at the pool. Like I feel very like reinvigorated body and mind. Nice, (laughs) nice, important. And you're getting some decent weather as well, actually. It was a nice ride in. Although I think it was raining today. Yeah, but even so, like, I mean, you know, because I live in so-called Sydney, like, I was thinking, oh, it's going to be freezing down here. It's actually okay. Mm. Like, I mean, I've got jumper a jumper on, but, like, yeah, I feel like it was good. Yeah, it's, um, we're entering the point of it happening. I feel like around okay. rising every year is when it starts to get Ooh, cold. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, it's yet to come. Mm. But on the topic, so you said that you've been coming down to Melbourne a bit um, yes. recently. What's bringing you down this mm. time? What are you... This time, yeah, I'm coming for Rising. Mm. Um, lol. Yeah, I have some work work coming up next year, which I think actually is probably embargoed at the moment, lol. But, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, so I'm coming down just to see some shows, check out some venues for producing something next year. Mm. So, yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah, it's. I think it's looking like a really good program this year. I don't know if it's just yes. me being more aware of it, but it seems as though the program is, like, a lot more inclusive and it's really cool. Like, there's a lot of cool stuff on. You were telling me that you're yes. going to Ghetto Biennale. Yes, yeah. yes, I'm going to this. Um, It's, like, a Haitian... Haitian street artists, I think. Mm, yeah. Um, it looks like it's going to be amazing. Yeah, there's a community night tomorrow that I'm going to. Um, and then I'm going to Black Mass on Sunday, that um, club night curated by DJ PGZ. Oh, uh, yeah. looks like it's going to be stunning. Um, yeah, I've got a whole mixture of things that I'm seeing. I'm really excited. Yeah, it's going to be so good. I Yeah, it's a shame that you weren't down here for Year and Boy. I saw um, <gasps> yes. DJ PGZ played the grand organ. Yes, this looked so good. I wish that I came and another friend of mine, Jada Narkle, was performing. Mm. Yeah, I've actually never been to Year and Boy. Yeah, was like... that the... I had never heard of it before, actually, mm. until after it happened, so mm. I might have to get around it next year, but mm. do you know if that was the initial one? Or it... No, no, no. Yeah, it's been going for a while. I'm not sure how long, but yeah. 
it's definitely a staple. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So we met probably maybe three or four months ago yeah. at the last Duddy Voguing event yes. at the Fairfield Amphitheatre. Yes. Um, and I guess you're kind of a unique guest because although <laughs> we are acquainted, we're yes. not quite friends yet. So yes. I don't know exactly what you do. Do you think yes. you could give me a quick self-introduction of, well, at your own pace, of what yes. you do, your <laughs> creative outputs and whatnot? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I would describe myself as an interdisciplinary artist. Um, so I work across all types of forms, depending on the needs of the project. Um, very often I work with choreography or like live performance, or I make work like video work or film work. Um, and then I'm also a DJ. Um, and like a curator slash community organizer. So I like produce and put on events as well. Like I run a a club night called Crip Rave Theory, which is um, centered around creating more intersectionally accessible club or party spaces. Mm. Um, Yeah, I would say that those are my main outputs. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and how did you... So, I understand that you studied law before yes, this. Yeah, what, I did. What was the pipeline from yeah. being a law <laughs> academic at ANU? Yeah. I did... So, I did my graduate diploma of legal practice at ANU, yeah. undergrad at Macquarie Uni. Mm. <laughs> but, yeah, it is funny. I mean, I feel like a lot of um, lawyers turn to the arts. Yeah. Um, and I was no exception there. Um, so... Yeah, basically, okay, the storyline is um, I actually kind of always wanted to be... Actually, in the beginning, I wanted to be an actor. Um, uh, I was, like, really into that when I was in high school. Um, But then I went to... Do you know NIDA? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to the, like, open day for NIDA, um, and this was, like, a while ago. Like, it was... I don't really know how progressive it is now, but it was much less progressive back then. Yeah. Um, And I went to the open day... Um, uh, when I was like in year 12 and they were like, oh, like if you're under 25, like don't even bother auditioning, like go and get some life experience and then come back. Like it was a a pretty weird, uh, pitch, but anyway, that's what they said at the open day. And also like, it was very inaccessible back then, like from a like architectural standpoint, like I couldn't really Uh, get to many of the rooms and stuff. So I thought, uh, I don't think I'm going to get in here. Mm. (laughs) So I was like, okay, what am I going to do? And I guess... You know, um, like being a disabled person, um, person of color, like I feel like I've obviously like many people experienced marginalization in my life. And so the other area that I guess I was interested in was law. Mm. Um, And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go and do a law degree instead. (laughs) And then maybe when I finish that, I'll be around 25 and maybe I'll be able to slide into the arts, you know, or otherwise I'll just like love law and I'll just stay in that arena. Um, so I went to uni and I did that and that took about six years because, um, at, uh, Macquarie Uni, you have to do a double degree uh, as an undergrad or you yeah. had to when I went there, which I guess they're just trying to squeeze more money out of you. So, um, so yeah, I did that. That took about six years. Um, and I actually really like, really loved that a lot. And while I was there, I, um, got an internship at the Australian Human Rights Commission and, I just loved working there. I was in the investigation and conciliation section, which is um, basically a process that's kind of like mediation, um, where 
uh, like conciliators will bring together parties um, when there are like allegations of discrimination and try to facilitate an outcome prior to going to court and litigating. It's mm. like um, a mandatory process. Yeah. So I really enjoyed working in that section, and then um, I got I like got a job there after after I interned there, and so I was working there for a while. Um, uh, and when I like finished uni, I was like working at some community legal centers and stuff as well as at the commission, but I was just sort of feeling like across these contexts, like, I don't know, I guess I was seeing that like the legal system is, is maybe just like, you know, not that equipped for making systemic change, Mm. you know, like, I guess any kinds of like legislative reform or like I don't know just any kind of like massive structural shifts just take a lot you know which you're not I don't know you're you're one like little cog in a huge wheel and it's not that easy to affect change and I guess I was also seeing that like um like litigation and these types of things were not always really like leading to outcomes that were that meaningful for people, mm. you know, um, or it was just very hard to get to an outcome because of just structural issues. And so I was like, oh, I feel a bit like disenfranchised with this. Um, I feel like, yeah, I'm not able to affect the kind of change that I want to affect. Um, and so I thought, uh, maybe I could do that in the arts. Mm. I don't know, maybe I could. <laughs> So then I just um, started to, while I was like still working at the commission, I started to um, like audition for some things. Um, and because I was like so inexperienced, I only did like a few auditions and then I was like, oh, like I haven't, I haven't got a job yet. Like, I think I'm going to quit. You know what <laughs> I mean? After like doing like probably like five auditions or something, which is so ridiculous in hindsight. But anyway, um, I was like, I'm going to do one more. Um, which was uh, for this production at Australian Theatre for Young People. Mm. And, and and if I don't get it, then I'm going to give up on that, <laughs> which is just such a young person thing to say. But anyway, I got I was successful in that audition. <laughs> and I um, so I came to be in a show at Australian Theatre for Young People. Um, and that was really, that was my door into the creative industries, mm. basically. And it was, um, it was a really... There were it was there were a lot of problems with that production really, but um, I guess one of the things that was um, generative for me, I suppose, was that it wasn't um, a work that was uh, where we were like performing a set script. It was a devised piece where like myself and the rest of the performers had to generate the content. Ah, so it's kind of like impromptu. We did cuff. we did a lot of improvisation like in the like rehearsals mm. and then that got set. Oh, as, so you kind of decide work. what works as you go through it. Yeah. yeah. So that was just something different for me because I guess like, you know, I'd only done, you know, reading excerpts of plays at high school. Like mm. I was like very green and just not knowledgeable. So that kind of made me feel like, oh wow, um like I could tell stories. Like it seems very obvious, but like I guess to be part of doing that in a context that I guess had some sort of profile I was like oh actually yeah like I I should do this like I don't have to um perform other people's work I could make my own work um and say the things that I want to say or whatever and so that's kind of 
where it started. Like after I finished that show, um, I I went and did some more stuff with another kind of like indie theatre space that also like offered residencies for artists to make their own work. And then I started to like make my own little things um, and just like go to a lot of workshops and just like meet other people in the industry. And then slowly I started to get opportunities to make my own work. Um, and then they kind of just like increased in profile. Um, and now like, what is it? six years later I've been doing it for about six years um it's really like going well and mm. it's um it's my like main source of income like okay. my main job yeah, yeah. okay <coughs> I see so you kind of entered the industry as a novice and it seems mm. to me from what you've said that there was like your early period was characterized by a lot of upskilling and networking yes absolutely yeah so you think that those were like the key characteristics that kind of allowed you to build more success on what you had done already I think so, yeah, and just, like, open my eyes to what was possible, I suppose, in, t- in terms of, like, form and style and things like this because I guess, like, when I was at uni... Oh, sorry, when I was at school, it was just very traditional. Mm. And then as I was, like, connecting with more artists, I was like, oh, okay, actually, like, I could make, like, hybrid work or I could, I don't know, just work in forms that I had never really thought of using before or that I felt like maybe were too, like, daunting for me. Um, but then after, like, meeting other artists and seeing what they did, I was like, oh, that totally resonates with me. Or, like, that's an aesthetic that I that I feel compelled to use but had kind of thought maybe it's not, um, I don't know, just, like, professional or something because the work that I make now, like, um, for example, when I make video work, I mostly always shoot on a handy cam. Mm. So, like, it's very, like lo-fi the aesthetic you know and like I feel like I don't know if this is the case for people who go to art school but like there's probably like you know industry standard equipment that's like suggested to you and maybe like it's like more high-end or something I don't know this is just a guess Mm. but like that's what I thought as an outsider I was like okay couldn't possibly do like uh, a shoot that might be like a little bit janky or whatever or like couldn't possibly shoot it myself I'd have to get somebody else to do that um but then, like, work, meeting other artists who did that, I was like, okay, great, because that's the way that I want to work, mm. you know? So it was really good. It gave me the confidence to just, like, use the styles and use the tools that sit well with me. Yeah. Do you think that that um, lack of academic training in mm. doing creative work, and mm. I also would like to hear what kind of forms you've been working in, mm. do you think that that provided you with a bit more creative independence because you weren't as constrained by those structures? Definitely. Definitely, mm. Darcy, for sure. Yep, I think so. Um And I also think that, um, you know, being a disabled person um, and, like, being somebody who, um, you know, a lot of spaces are just not physically accessible to, um, I just was already... I already had to think about things in a different way Mm. and was, like, you know, a lot of, like, typical processes or whatever just wouldn't... just won't work for me or will need adjusting. And so I think that helped as well because I was like, you know, I didn't have to, I don't know, yeah, adhere to things in those ways as well necessarily because I just knew they wouldn't work for me. So I was like, okay, I have to set processes up my own way. Yeah, 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 interesting. I think that that um, also for me seems to align definitely with being a disabled person of colour because it's like your message in particular is so unique to you. It's you're the person who knows the most how you want to present that. Mm, This is true. Mm. This is true. (laughs) 
Great. So, I, yeah, so you were saying that you've been doing creative work, doing a bunch of different kind of performances over the yes. past six years. What kind yeah. of mediums have these been and what mm. is – what kind, can you give me an example of the kind of work that you have been doing? Totally, yeah. So, um, well, probably one of the most famous, um, like, pieces of work or, like, an ongoing body of work of mine, um, it's called Animate Loading um, and it's, it's a – yeah, it's an iterative choreographic project. So that basically means that, like, um, I do different versions of it depending on the context that it's, like, commissioned for. Um, so what happens in it is that, um, yeah, it's a live performance work um, that happens um, acro- usually across dusk into darkness. Um, and what happens is that um, a group of performers... Um, who come from a really varied um, range of places in terms of their lived experiences, in terms of like their movement languages, um, in terms of their creative practices or not. Um, Like a few people that I worked with when we started this project would never have called themselves artists, but now like would absolutely claim that title. Um, These people come into a space, which is a public space, quote unquote, Um, And I guess they, like, engage with it in terms of its, like, seen and unseen dimensions. So, like, they interact with the architecture of it um, in, like, a movement-based kind of way, like, which is, I don't know, like, lyrical, but also, you know, some of it could be described as parkour, Mm. maybe, or, like, parkour adjacent. Um, and, And they kind of... I suppose what it's trying to do is that because they're because of who they are, the bodies that they inhabit, disabled people, trans people, people of colour, having them move, like, freely and expressively in these places, um, the hope is that um, when the audience is there, immersed in this and experiencing it as well, that they will feel, like, more free to show up in those spaces as themselves um, and that it will make them look at the space in a different way as mm. well. Yeah, just trying to, like, o- open up so-called public spaces, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Cool, yeah. cool. So do you feel like that's kind of a common theme along your work, trying to open up people's ability to exist and yes. take space? Yeah. Definitely, definitely it is, yeah. So th- that project has happened in three places so far. Um, it started off at um, this... Well, just beside this artist-run space um, in Parramatta um, called Pari. Um, on, it was on the rooftop of a car park, like mm, an open-air car park. Yeah, I think I saw this one on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's where, that's where it began. It was very, very DIY. Um, it was really great. Like, we, we performed... Yeah, they just gave us a lot of space to just do what we wanted to do. Um, we performed it... I think we did three shows or four shows and like one night it was raining and like we performed in the rain and it was just like so beautiful um yeah it was amazing so that was the first one and then we did one at um Kasula Powerhouse yeah which is a really interesting space um we worked out the front there's like these post-industrial kind of stone ruins there like big like slabs and ramps and stuff Mm. that are just like disused um, and so, like, the performers work in that space. They, like, climb on it and, um, yeah, like, draw, draw people's attention to it, I suppose, and the surfaces and um, the materiality of it. And then also we worked at the back 
of the building where there are like these big disused water tanks that are like graffitied. So we worked in a space around there. And then the third one uh, just happened in December at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. It was commissioned, they commissioned me to make an iteration to um, uh, open the new North building there. Um, they've like got Is a whole- Is that the brand new building? Yeah, yeah, the new building. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so this was, a, this was like, a, like a really, really big job. Mm. Um, and so when we did it there, like the performers start outside on one of the terraces and then they come in and they like wash throughout the whole space. It's like multiple levels and there's a really big like atrium in the middle where you can stand on the top level and look down. So like people would be watching up there while the performers were like moving up and down on the escalators and just like throughout. Um, and then they come back up and then we end outside in the trees. Um, yeah, so those are the three versions. And I also make video offerings of those um, so that people who can't, come and experience them in situ can access them and also I guess just to like capture them and extend the work in another form um so yeah I've made I've made video versions the Pari one is available um on First Draft's website which is um uh, another gallery um in Sydney and then I've just made one um uh which is um that like which was filmed at the art gallery, and that one's going to go on the Opera House website soon. Um, and then the Kusula one is going to open, showing inside the powerhouse in a gallery there cool. in July. Yeah, hey, nice. Yeah, and I think I'm interested in. I guess for you, I so you've been you've started pivoting from a law background into yes. making your primary income in creative industry and yes. doing these kind of performance works. Yes. I'm interested in operatively, how does make, because it's quite different to the narrative that you normally hear of anyone who works in creative <laughs> industry, you know, being able to yeah. make a living off it. Yeah. How does it work? Is it kind of yeah. like grants or commissions? Or yeah, totally. Um, so at the moment, lately, I've been fortunate enough to mostly get commissions. Mm. Prior to that, it was grants and... I was having to do other things because it's just not like grants are just not really sustainable. Like there's never enough to go around and it, they're so incredibly competitive. So yeah, lately it's become a lot more sustainable because I'm mostly getting commissions. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a difficult place to get to. You have, like, yeah, there's definitely an element of luck involved in that as well. Yeah, and I guess probably your law background assisted in having a high level of um, literacy to be able to apply for those and get the grants and that kind of thing, which is a big barrier for people. I think so, absolutely. Like, I think, yeah, I think, you know, people who are outside of the creative industries don't realise that, like, to be a creative and have a sustainable career, like, unfortunately, it's not enough to just be good at your, like, artistic output you have to also be a producer and a marketing manager mm. and a grant writer and like all these things like it's it's really a lot yeah <laughs> definitely i think yeah. that's the common theme with everybody i yeah. speak to particularly with the marketing perspective mm. because you can make the best thing in the world but if you can't flog it it's useless you have to it <sighs> just can't exist um which is so symptomatic of our 21st century context i guess yes yeah. it absolutely and like i feel like with marketing as well like it's a thing where, like, you have to commit to doing it in a s sustained way as well. Because, mm. yeah, it, even if you do, like, one good post, people are just going to forget it. Yeah. You know? So it really, like, I feel like periodically my life is consumed by marketing. Mm. And I'm like, ah, But then I'm like, oh, well, if I stop, 
it's not gonna yeah, no one's gonna come to the thing yeah yeah so it's difficult it's really difficult mm. and on the topic of other stuff that you had been doing to get by and i guess maybe it's not necessarily just to get by but also mm. to find more creative fulfillment can you tell me a bit mm. about your musical practice yes i can um so yeah i definitely have a dj practice now um which is so exciting like i just love it so much i feel like it really um like fills me up in a different way to oh I don't know it's similar in some ways but yeah it does something different for me to the uh, rest of my creative outputs I would say and how I got into that was um well I used to play music when I was in high school um I used to play the clarinet Mm. so I come from a classical music background um and I like I've always loved music and I actually yeah, and when I went to uni, I I kind of stopped playing because there wasn't a band at my uni mm. and, you know, playing the clarinet on your own, like one melody line, like it's okay, but like, <laughs> you know, kind of you can kind of only go so far with it. I don't know. <laughs> so I was like, I just can't like, okay, this is just, it's just slowing down. Um, so, and when I was at uni, actually, I really wanted to learn how to DJ and they had like a DJing course. I don't know how good it would have been at Macquarie Uni, but anyway, I wanted to do that. But I didn't. It wasn't part of my, like, Mm. you know, degrees. And I was like, oh, I can't really... I'm already spending enough money on these other degrees. (laughs) I can't do it. Um, So I didn't do it then, but but I have wanted to for a long time. And then... um, How did I... Yeah, I've got to remember this timeline. It's kind of random. Um, So then I... Oh, yeah, okay. So you might be familiar with FBI Radio. Yeah. Yeah. So FBI... Um, runs a intro to DJing course um, called Dance Class. Um, And so I um, applied for that and I wasn't successful in getting programmed for it. I think most of the other people wanted to do a genre of music that I didn't want to do or something. For whatever reason, I didn't get chosen. But they offered me a presenting role or like to do presenter training there. Mm. So I did presenter training. And so I started to like make friends that were DJs, connect with other DJs. Um, and then at the same time, actually a little bit before, story is a bit circuitous. Um, I I also saw some ads online for this place called the Sydney DJ School. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, this could be my chance or whatever. <laughs> so I, I um, hit the guy up. And the place wasn't accessible. So then he was like, come and have a lesson at my house, which in hindsight seems really sus. But anyway, I went there. It was fine. He was lovely. But um, the equipment wasn't really that accessible. I guess like, you know, often CDJs are like at standing height. Yeah, yeah. So I came there. It wasn't accessible. But he, but the valuable thing that he did was he was like, you know, like if you have a little bit of money, like even like $200 or something to spare, you could just buy a controller. Like you could just buy a little DDJ and I have these lessons that you can do online. You could do that. Um, And so I was like, you know what? I do have a little bit of money at the moment. Let me buy one. Let me do his lessons online. So I bought the DDJ and then um, I think maybe we went into lockdown. Ah, So, um, So then I was... I was just like a bedroom DJ from that point. I was just like kind of just teaching myself. Um, and then and then a little bit after that, when I did the dance class 
thing that didn't happen. And then I went into um, uh, the presenting. I met those other DJs. So then I was making friends who played. So then that really like helped me, I guess, to gain confidence to keep doing it. I had some people who could help me in person to learn. Mm. Um, and and then I started going to more parties and stuff, seeing my friends play. And um, I guess that was like spurring me on to like play more myself. But it also showed me that um, I guess the live music industry is like everything else, uh, extremely inaccessible. Mm. Um, and, you know, I wasn't really seeing many other obviously disabled identifying people in those spaces slash I cu- couldn't even get into a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I'd want to go and then my friends would be like, sorry, like, it's full of stairs. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm not going then. Um, so that kind of, I guess, fueled something in me to be like, I want to start my own party series. And I guess because I'd already been producing my own work as an artist, I had experience in producing events. Mm. So I was like, I think I can do this. And I think I have like enough contacts who are DJs and also like venues and things like this to be able to do this maybe. Um, And I couldn't see anybody else doing it. And I think that's just largely because um, having access to like these types of things is difficult for anyone Mm. and you know especially maybe for disabled people so I was like okay I'm gonna do it (laughs) so then um I just like last year I put on the first one of these parties that I run um called Crip Rave Theory um and yeah it's just basically like a club night that exists outside of the club because clubs are so often not accessible but it functions in the same way, basically. Like, it's just, like, DJs and performers, um, but it is a disability-led event, um, obviously, because I'm disabled. And um, and the intention with it is just to try to create an intersectionally accessible space. So, like, party space. So it was really important to me with this event that, like, it wasn't... It's not just for disabled people because that would just result in another segregated... Thing. Yeah, you know what I mean. Which we've got enough of those, mm. and a lot of them suck. <laughs> so I was like, no, that's not what I want. Um, I really want to try to make this as intersectionally accessible as possible. Also, just to like um, demonstrate to people that like access needs are not just <coughs> um, contained to disability. Like, um, you know, there are there are many things that people need in order to be able to access a space. Like it was really, you know, I would say that like having a welcome to country is like a cultural access need. You know what I mean? Mm. Or like um, having um, all gender bathrooms, like mm. other things like this. Like these are all things that people need in order to um, like meaningfully access a space. Um, and so, you know, when I'm planning these events and producing them, like these things are all part of the considerations um so yeah we've done two of them so far and both sold out Mm. um they both happened in so-called sydney um and the response has really 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 been amazing um like a lot of a lot of people getting in contact especially for the first one because i guess it hadn't been happening prior to that being like i haven't been able to go to a club night for like two years three years six years or like, I feel so anxious when I go to other clubs. I actually felt comfortable here. And like, not just disabled people saying this, like, you know, 
a lot of people who wouldn't identify as disabled. Because the experience is overwhelming. In so exactly, it's just like you say, it's overwhelming yeah. in more ways than just one. Yeah. So it's been really, it's been really great. Um, and yeah, I'm just loving, loving doing them. Yeah. Yeah. And what kind of spaces have you been using in order to make them accessible? Mm. So. I've only used one space so far. Mm. Um, it's a venue um, in Erskineville called Pact, Centre for Emerging Artists. It's primarily used as an art space, um, but, like, the thing that's good about it is that it has, like, like an indoor kind of warehousey sort of space, but it also has a courtyard. So that means that, like, we can have some open-air programming so that people who are like immunocompromised or just don't want to be inside like a heaving kind of like rammed place can still come and like enjoy and you know it also it's just like great for like mingling and like breathing freely mm. um so yeah it's important to have like an outdoor space and an indoor space um and it's like recently been renovated so like it has a deck that has a ramp and it's got all dinner bathrooms and it's it's a good space yeah, yeah yeah i think even hearing you say that especially highlights for me as someone who's fully able how easy mm. it is to neglect even considering about things if it's not a part of your lived experience yeah. particularly with just like the crowded spaces because for mm. so many people that's seen as like Something that's so endemic to yes. the club and something that maybe you don't enjoy, but you accept, yes. yet people don't understand how it can actually be incredibly inaccessible for people. Yes, I feel that totally. And, like, you know, there's so much there's so much to think about with the event and, like, people's access needs often, like, butt up against each other. So, like, you know, I would say that always inevitably, like, at the events, like, there's something that, you know, we are not able to achieve or that, like, we would want to do but we didn't, I don't know, like, get it as smooth or whatever as we want it to be. But I definitely feel like we are hitting a lot of markers or yeah, whatever. Like, and I feel you're like, also yeah. providing something that didn't exist before. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe didn't exist as much before. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. It's That's, really exciting. Yeah. I love it. It's really fun. Yeah. yeah. And so what's next for Crit Rave Theory? Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> there is there is another one. There is another one. Um I'm gonna do one at the end of the year, I yep. think. In another one in so called Sydney. Um so yeah, people should look out for that. Mm -hmm. And you can follow the Instagram, just like at Crip C R I P Rave Theory or one word. Um and then there'll be another one next year down here in Nam. But I can't talk too much can't about it because yeah. it's embargoed. But um but yeah, there's a, there's like a few on the way, which is very exciting. Great, yeah, yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited for the one here in Nam. I'll have to yeah. get around it. Yeah, you will have to. Cool. So on the topic of rising, which is yes. pretty much the hottest thing in town at the moment. Yes. I know that I was telling you that I'm heading off to Dark Mofo yes. next weekend as well. And you said so. You had a DJ set at Monofoma a little yes. while ago. Can you? I'm not actually sure what Monofoma is. So I was wondering yeah. if you could outline to me what you yes. did there and yeah, tell me a bit about it. Totally. Okay. <laughs> Lol. I hope I don't butcher it. <laughs> um, I, so it's the summer, it's like a summer festival there. Like, it's like the, I guess, like, sibling of Dark Mofo, from what I understand, but the summer version. So I went down there and I played for two nights, um, in Nipaluna, Hobart. Um, and I was playing at this event called The Party, um, which was curated by Ian Sinclair and Lauren Rubicana, or Pony Express is like their um, joint venture. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really, really fun. It was um, 
I think the space was a disused print hall, maybe? Mm. Or paper mill, maybe? I don't know. Basically, it was like... um, yeah, it was something to do with printing, lol. So there were like there was like it was like a warehouse, like a like a multi-level warehouse, but there was like a lot of like old kind of like industrial machinery that was left in there as well, um which just added to the aesthetic. Um but yeah, it was so sick. Like I um I played there and they like set up this scaffolding tower um which I was within um like as a DJ. Um it was really good like they like they made sure that it was accessible and they like built a ramp to get up into the tower which just like fully fit with the aesthetic it was really good it was like um i think a meaningful example of like integrating access yeah. features into the design that looked good you know that weren't cringe because they like did it from the outset mm. um it was such a fun gig and like a lot of other amazing DJs played um like Bradley Zero came here from the UK, um, Gabrielle Quetang, yeah, and like other locals. Um, yeah, it was really fun. Cool. I want to go back. I want to play again. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I'm starting to get really excited. Yeah, I'm so it. jealous. Yeah, it's a lot to look forward to. <laughs> Jeez. So I think well, something that I wanted to ask you about that I feel like I probably could have interlinked earlier is, I guess, <laughs> so your Afro-Caribbean roots and yes. background. So, um, how do you think that influences both? Well, I guess just your creative practice more generally. Yes. Yes. So I feel like. Um, I feel like DJing has been a place where I've really been able to connect with that more. Like, I feel like my, um, yeah, my way into um, bringing that aspect of my identity to the fore was definitely DJing. Because I feel like prior to then, I suppose because I'm like a visibly disabled person, because I'm a wheelchair user, you know, I get positioned as a disabled person. Mm. You know what I mean? And like, I get, I guess, like, you know, uh, organizations or whatever that wanted to work with me. I was branded as a disabled person, mm. you know what I mean? And, like, other facets of my identity <laughs> were not really, like, engaged with or, like, I don't know, seen as relevant or whatever. And I suppose when you're starting out as an artist, like, to an extent you might feel like you just have to go with that, you know, because you don't getting that many opportunities. So you're like, okay, this isn't really all that I am, but I want to take the job or whatever, so yeah. I'm going to let you position me in this kind of reductive way. And just like deal with it. <laughs> so I feel like that, you know, probably happened to me a bit earlier on in my career. Then when I started DJing, I guess, you know, um, like so much music um that's that comes from the Caribbean or is like connected to there, or like the Afro diaspora in general. Um, and so I felt like it was just such a meaningful way for me to connect to my culture and my heritage mm. and express that part of myself. Um, through what I played and so and I feel like yeah that's just been really amazing for me and really like meaningful on a personal level Um, and also I feel like it's (coughs) contributed in a great way to people seeing me as like a fuller person or whatever in Mm. terms of like the rest of my art practice as well and it's allowed me yeah, now that I now that that's like I guess that seems to be something that people are more like aware of now as another facet of who I am. Yeah. It means that I can like approach things yeah, I can just like be a lot more explicitly intersectional in what I do. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that reductionism is so, um, first of all, problematic, but mm. I guess it's very interesting to think about, I guess. It's kind of like, it seems like something of like a problematic inclusion. Like it, yes. it's very tokenistic in that way of somebody wanting to, because in many ways, you know what I mean, your disability is one of the least interesting things about you. you know, in, in <laughs> yes, this, yeah, totally. Um, like totally. With that, I feel like it's over time, people are slowly learning to be, to actually interact with like yes. being inclusive in a more meaningful capacity. Do you think that there has been like a cultural shift over time in that regard? Obviously, there's still a lot of challenges, Mm. but... I feel like it's definitely improving, for sure. Yes, I do. There is absolutely still a long way to go. Um, I feel like, you know, the best experiences that I've had around that are really in places or at, like, events or whatever that are run by other, quote-unquote, marginalised people because Mm. they are used to that happening to them. You know what I mean? So they're, like, um, they want... They, like, want to show up and be seen in an intersectional way. So I feel like when they're engaging with me or programming me, they're seeing me in that way as well. Mm. Yeah. But I feel like some of the, like, I don't know, I guess the more, like, the the bigger or the older institutions, which have, like, I don't know, like, old guard kind of people running them, not so much. That's still more archaic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that in my own experience in particular, it's like, um, of it just for me, it's having these kind of conversations especially mm. is what, because especially, you know, last year was the first time that I made meaningful friends with a person who was a wheelchair user as well. Mm. It's like when you actually meet people who are from marginalised backgrounds, you realise yeah. that there's, they're a full person. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's so, yes. it, it's so unthinkable to think about, but I think mm. it's just like... Yeah, it's strange. I hope that over mm. time more people will continue to, like, check themselves and also, like, check their mm. friend group and who they hang out yes. with because usually if there's a lack of diversity in your friends or in the people you're dealing with, that's when you will be acting in a tokenistic, insensitive way. Totally. I completely agree with you. And I feel like, you know, it's a lot, like, obvi- this is very obvious, but, like, it's a lot to do with the media and stuff as well. Mm. Like, just no representation of people you know, or less representation of people from certain communities. And when they are represented, yeah, is it in a tokenistic way or are they, you know, being, again, presented as full people? Like, I think there's still a massive issue, I would say, like in film and television, for example, where, like, you will only see disabled people popping up in um, in in things um, that are framed around talking about their disability. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, it still feels pretty rare to see, um, for example, like, I don't know, on like a random dramatic show, a person who's playing a character who is disabled and their disability is just incidental. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that, I think like the media is very much involved. And I think if we start to see more changes around that, I think that will help as well. Because then people, yeah, will just be like, okay, that's just like a facet of that person it's not a big deal it's not their whole life mm, it's not the it only topic to normalize it by yeah. seeing it represented in media without being like infantilized or yes something like that. completely mm. yes mm. <laughs> mm, yeah well that's pretty much all on my end did you have anything else that you wanted to discuss at all um i don't think so i don't know um what are you working on at the moment 
What am I that you're at excited the about? Well, yeah, it's going uh, and performing for Big Yeah, Web. well, yeah. So Dark Mofo, that's going to be cool. I think that yeah. will be fun. Um, I'm yeah. So I think recently I've been working on this radio show has been like you know the passion project slash thorn in my side for so Lol. long. I think it's <laughs> a lot of people know like it's just so difficult working on a creative project consistently, mm. like we were discussing earlier. Mm. Um, and yeah, so I'm just preparing for doing like a hard launch of this so yeah just kind of trying to get all that infrastructure in place like mm. line up interviews get i really want to start doing it every week being consistent cool. and yeah it is a challenge but it's really worth it like i think um for me i feel like my life is so characterized by being idle um and like you know i'm always so bored and dissatisfied because when you're a person who has a brain you mm. just i don't know i've somehow found myself in this position of mm. being like a receptionist and i wasn't doing Mm-mm-mm. anything else and i was wondering why i hate my life yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah doing this as i was saying before it kind mm. of gives me a purpose beyond myself because i'm yeah. having personal fulfillment but as well for me it's extremely satisfying to be doing something that is a product that I hope that other people can enjoy. I hope that this, you know, radio show can serve as a resource mm. for people who want to, who maybe don't see themselves in creative industry mm. or feel as though they don't have access to creative industry mm. for people to go, oh, you should actually listen to mm. this podcast. This person has something in common with you that yeah. maybe you could learn from and feel totally. inspired. Because, totally. Yeah. I don't know about, w- did you grow up in Sydney or? Yes, I did. Yeah. For me, I'm from the Central Coast, so oh. it's not too far, but yeah. also it's kind of like culturally. Yes. There isn't a very strong ac- academic focus. There didn't feel sure. like a lot of opportunity and life for mm. me when I left the Central Coast, just got bigger and bigger yes. and bigger. When I moved to Canberra, I realised, you know, I can be a lawyer or I can be a policymaker, but yeah. when I moved to Melbourne, I realised, you know, you can be a dancer or you can yeah. be a DJ or do yeah. whatever. And so for me, I hope that, I think that my, like, initial seed concept is that a young person like that could listen to this show and go, oh, you know, Rihanna just got into it, mm. you know. They started, they did some tryouts, they totally. did it, they upskilled, they networked. It yes. doesn't always have to be some kind of magical thing because for me when I grew up I was like told there's no money in that or very few people can be successful but that's what causes this attrition that allows just a very few to be successful in the industry totally I agree with you and on that note yeah maybe I can just like say some like a little like tips or something Mm. I mean you've kind of summed it up Darcy but yeah I would really just like encourage anybody who like feels like they have something to say creatively to just absolutely go for it you Mm. know and to like just lean into whatever it is like that the angle that you feel compelled to use because that's the thing that's interesting about you you know what I mean like as I said like yeah exactly when I first started I was like oh I don't know if I could do that because I want to work in these ways that I haven't really seen anyone else working um so I feel like nobody be nobody will be into that or it it just is not viable or something but then when i just started to like i don't know just be staunch and authentic i suppose and be like this is the way that i want to work this is what i want to talk about this is why i'm passionate about it that's when like doors open for me mm. like i think yeah i think just like being yourself and just yeah leaning into what what um what comes naturally to you is the key cuz yeah 
Like, that's that's the thing that's interesting. Yeah, and no one else is going to tell your story, ultimately, at the that's end right. of the day. And you will never know what it's going to sound like until you yeah. put it out with the maximum capacity. And that's yeah. the thing that I feel like, for me, as someone who seemingly does things a lot in half measures, this <laughs> for, for me, I really want to push the radio show yeah. to a higher point because I can make it a distilled product that I'm proud of because I can yes. go, oh, because it, it doesn't matter if it's successful or not. But yeah. I want to know what it looks like when I mm. push it to the limit of what I can do with it. And I mm. feel really good now because I'm, you know, I'm pushing it to a height. Not that I'm doing anything different, but I learn more with every single person I speak to about mm. them and how I conduct myself in the world, as well as how I'm going to record good radio or edit better. And for me, it's incredibly enriching to look back on even, I haven't even done that much, but a year ago I didn't know how to use Adobe. And now I'm yeah, wow. really good at using Adobe. And I think that people... Yeah, a lot of barriers are actually imagined, like with particularly like, you know, technical expertise and yes. stuff like that. It's, yes. um, you can do a lot because people, yeah, there's totally. an, I, for me at least, I definitely struggle to overcome this feeling of like not being able to access creative creativity but yes. you know it's not as exclusive for me I don't know maybe I had just imagined it as some kind of abstract concept but no I felt that too and like yeah I work I work really DIY like you know I I like shoot mostly like on Handycam if I'm making video work I edit in iMovie <laughs> mm. because I know it and it works for me like you know there'll probably be a point where I need to move beyond that if I you know or I need to like upskill in it but like at the moment like those are the tools I use. I use Logic if I want to make sound. Um, but, like, yeah, like, I'm not, you know, I'm not using tools that are, like, particularly expensive or, like, um, I don't know. Yeah, like, the the barrier for entry is, like, not not very high. I mean, iMovie just comes with your computer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and, like, they they work fine for me. Like, you know, and, and, like, those pieces of work, pieces of work that I've made on them, like, you know, I just made a video that's been commissioned by the Opera House, like, and I made it on <laughs> I made it on iMovie. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, that's fine. Like, it works for me. It fits with the aesthetic and the style that I that I want to employ. So, like, that's cool. Like, I might need to use something else in the future, but like, yeah, I think just people shouldn't be afraid to just like use the tools that are at their disposal and use the tools that they want to use. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good lesson. I think. <laughs> yeah, it's very good in that. Yeah, hope that everybody listening does that. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming and chatting with me, thank Rihanna. You. It's been great. Um, and cheers to you. Oh, cheers. <laughs> <laughs>